The ship has been sacrificed and Craig has joined the call. Blood is necessary to start the podcast. It's Halloween. It is. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And we are here, finally, this has been many weeks in coming, but we are ready to start our next reading extravaganza, our next adventure into the forays of the slow-rolling apocalypse that we find ourselves in continually and always. But first, what are you drinking right now, Steven? That's an excellent question. And it is fall, as you mentioned in your previous rants. And uh, I'm having a lovely cup of cider. Mm, good man. Sam? Or not. Absolutely. Is it real cider with alcohol in it or uh, or child cider? Uh, no, it's, it, wow, when you put it like that, you know, I don't think I really want to answer it. It's uh, really boxed him in there. Oh, yeah, oh. really? Like, man, I feel like that's, uh, what's the, the term? Faulty dichotomy? It's good cider, okay? It's fine. Um, okay. But it's without alcohol, admittedly. Okay, well, while Stephen is enjoying his juice, I have got some um, peppermint tea. He's- <laughs> I remember a couple times ago, I, I came in, like, I intentionally got myself whiskey, and then both of you fools didn't have any any sort of alcohol, and then you gave me crap over it. Or no, no, either, either it was just bread. <laughs> one but regardless. Steven, we give you crap because you're Steven, not because of whatever you're drinking. As as for myself, I'm drinking uh, some knockoff LaCroix Salil, which I think is just about, I think, the most inferior of the various knockoff LaCroix uh, brands that I have because LaCroix is too expensive and I drink too much of it to justify buying anything of remote quality. Uh, but it's grapefruit tonight, so. D- d- does it have alcohol in it? No. And that's perfectly fine, Brevin. Good for you. No, it's not, man. Steven, like, what are you, five? <laughs> I don't know. You're the one drinking non-alcoholic uh, drinks. You think kids like LaCroix? This is I sophisticated. Listen, just be careful that you don't get any on your hands and make your keyboard sticky, splashing around in your cider like a kindergartner. Anyway, uh, so if you, if, you, if you have a lid, if you put a little, if you put a little sippy lid on it, okay, <laughs> yeah, that'll, that'll make it. But actually, okay. the last time I had a sippy cup, it was at the Seattle Symphony, and it was with wine. Yes. Yeah, all the all the um, symphony places, all the all the theaters, sippy cups for your wine and whiskey. It, it was the greatest thing in the world. I loved it. And that that tells you everything that you need to know. All right, uh, let's get into the topic (laughs) at hand, which is our new book entitled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution by Carl R. Truman. Uh, This book came out uh, a couple years ago, 2020, I believe, and it sort of made the rounds. Um, I, I, I'd heard whispers and, 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 and rumors of it from, from various people, seen it on various people's uh, tables or, you know, by their bedsides. Uh, but we finally actually read it, and it is quite good. Uh, and probably the, the number one thing uh, going for it is that McIntyre is a core pillar uh, as is Charles Taylor and Secular Age, which is just music to our ears, uh, Obviously, gentlemen, you know, without going into the content of the book or, you know, what we're going to be talking about uh, yet, um, what did what did you make of this ad- adventure we've been going on for the past couple months here? Yeah, I, I remember I think it was Sam who brought it up at first um, and suggested that both of us read it. And I, I mean, 
he generally has good taste in books. And so I got both the hard copy and the uh, audio, uh, audible version and started listening to it. And I listened to it one time and then I listened to it again. And then I listened to it a third time. And I'm, I'm like on my doing another round kind of as I prepare for the podcast more and more. Um, my goodness, like he is just one of the most articulate thinkers that I've ever encountered. Like McIntyre is great. McGilchrist uh, is great. All of the authors we've read are great, but he's probably the most clear. He, he's probably the most articulate, just the, the most, it, it is extremely easy to follow his line of thinking. When he paints a historical narrative, it's a very clear historical narrative. And I, I just really appreciate that. I mean, he's just a pleasure to read. No, I agree. And that's what struck me the most about him as well. I, I listened to it on audiobook and I think I finished it right before I saw you guys in Michigan. And I was like, this is, I, I finished it on that flight. And I was like, this, this is our next book. We have to do this book because he is, he, he respects Taylor and McIntyre and, and takes their arguments at like their, at their, in their full bit. You know what I mean? Like Dreyer Wright is famous for cherry picking McIntyre and everybody wants to talk about McIntyre, but nobody talks about McIntyre in his entirety. And Truman's really getting at like the core of his argument, which is the ethical, McIntyre's an ethicist at his core. He's not trying to build this big, huge political philosophy. He's an ethicist, and he's talking about modern ethics. And so, and and Truman takes him for that, and works with his ethical framework and how it applies to the modern ethical framework and where we've and how we've gotten there, both using McIntyre's history and adding in a bit of his own. So thoroughly enjoy it. Um, also, I listened to it first on audiobook, which was great. And now reading through the physical copy, which I just got, I want to say like a week or two ago. I'm very impressed with the quality of the physical actual the book. It's uh, remarkably footnoted, just an overall pleasure to read, which um, is always a pro in, not say a pro in my book, but that's, I'll say a pro in my book. We'll leave it that's, at that. That's just two on the nose. Yeah, I think the only yeah. thing that I would disagree with is that calling McIntyre an ethicist concedes the, the idea that ethics exist, which as we know, they do not. They're made up. They're fake. Uh, All right, they're just emotional sentences about your personal preference. Well, no, no. It's just that the entire field of ethics is 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 a contrived, pale shadow. You know, it's it, it's the Enlightenment seeking to justify itself, which it cannot do. It's all just uh, shades and mirrors, as it were. I said, ah, right, right. The Enlightenment project of justifying morality, as yeah. we all know. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, so uh, enough said about the you know the the uh, quality of the book. Like you know, we could go over the texture of the binding, uh, perhaps. You it's know, very good. Yeah, honestly, we should get like a professional uh assessor publisher person uh such as your wife perhaps sam to to give us a rundown <laughs> of the of, of the full component list like you know this is the highest quality merovingian cardboard used for the outer cover whereas the uh well, uh, well the pages uh, are this nice shade of like they're kind of like an off-white cream that's what i i really enjoy that uh that's actually uh uh desert dusted uh oyster shell uh sam that's not cream excuse you all right. Uh, yes. Uh, but anyway, uh, let's get into the book proper. So, Sam, why don't you introduce yeah. us to uh, to 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 part one? Uh, and in in this episode, we're just going to cover the the first two chapters because they are dense enough as it is. So the structure of this book is uh, four four parts. Uh, the first part is basically just an overview of what the next three parts are going to be, looking at the architecture of the revolution and what basically is articulating the argument that's about to come. His second part is the foundations of the revolution, where he walks through um, all the historical philosophers who were building up to our modern moment. Uh, 
particular particular focus on Rousseau, on um, the Romantics, and on um, more controversial figures, Nietzsche, Marx, and Darwin, which is a particularly fun chapter. He then moves into the sexualization of the revolution, where he links all of these pretty high-level, well-known philosophers to sexuality and walks through the move from them to the sex, which we see as being a very prominent part of modern culture. And then part four is the triumphs of the revolution, where he looks at where are we now and what what has this led to, and looks at all the negative ways this has affected our culture. And then finally, he walks through some possible um, alternatives or even just options for for those who do not want to become part of this revolution. So it's all it's all framed through the idea of a revolution building over the course of the Enlightenment and then exploding in the mid 20th century. And I, I think it would be useful to uh, articulate kind of his overall project, uh, which he claims at the very beginning of the introduction, that the sentence, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, makes intuitive sense to people today. Not only to the people who have sat through postgraduate seminars in queer theory, but to Joe Briefcase on the, the street. And he finds this remarkable because his grandfather, who died 20 years ago, he is very confident that if you had said that sentence to his grandfather, he would have, it, it wouldn't have made any sense. He would have not understood. It would not have been a true or a false statement. It would have been an absurd statement. And that that sort of rapid transition from being nonsensical or perhaps maybe sensical within the, the grad seminars on queer theory, but nonsensical elsewhere, to being inherently meaningful and even morally powerful within such a short time span demands some sort of historical explanation for how we got here. And so he he wishes to explain that historical phenomenon. Yep. Yeah. So that's that's the introduction, which I think is very powerful, where like that's the clear, stark difference. And so he moves into chapter one, reimagining the self, um, with setting up who his main players are going to be, who he's going to be leaning on to explain this, and who he thinks have the, the power to explain it. The core thesis of his book is that this revolution is actually a manifestation of a wider understanding of what it means to be a self. And so therefore, he needs to be inquiring, what is this view of self? Um, he makes a distinct, uh, he makes a distinction between uh, sexual activity and sexuality as identity, which he will come back to over and over throughout the book, and is essential to understand in order to get really most of what's going on. Um, the main three thinkers that he's going to be leaning on are Charles Taylor, the philosopher, uh, Char uh, Philip Reif, the psychologist and sociologist, and our our boy, Alistair McIntyre, the ethicist, if we can call him that. Um, he's going to assess this shift through the social ima imaginary, which is Taylor's main argument. Basically, the, the move from the social imaginary being permeated by Christianity to the secular. Uh, and the new ethical beliefs that exist in that new secular view. The second component that he pulls from Taylor is the relationship between uh, mimesis and poiesis. The mimetic view is that of the world having a given order to it, while the poetic view is the world being made of raw material to which purpose is uh, poured. And Taylor notes that the shift from Christian to secular has been accompanied by a shift from mimetic to poetic. Uh, this has been caused by technology, developments in philosophy, as you see in a comparison from Descartes and Aquinas. And I would posit um, maybe even a bit of a left-right brain shift. Again, McGillicris would, would, would agree with this idea. He also looks to Philip Reef, 
who was somebody I was not familiar with at all before reading this book. Philip Reith, um, the psychologist, but he was particularly interested in the applications of um, psycho psychological patterns and pathologies to explaining cultural change. Um, Reith, Reith posits that culture directs a man outward. Basically, it's always causing somebody to exercise their identity and their their person out into the um, the polis. He looks to the political man in Plato, uh, leading to the religious man in the Middle Ages, both exercising oneself out into the political scene, to the, to the square, um, to the religious man who's exercising it in, in church, to the economic man, uh, as seen in Marx, exercising his, his self economically on the market, which, is moved, which moves into the psychological man. However, the psychological man is different from these other three in that it moves inward. Uh, Truman equates this very similarly to the expressive individual in Taylor. Psychological man and the expressive individual are basically the same thing. Person, A person caught up in their own identity and pushed inward by it. Reef also talks a bit about the shift in the therapist. The therapist has, has shifted in our culture from directing from being a priest, one who directs one to the needs of the community. And when you have trouble, you're going to be pushed into how can you slot yourself into the community, looking outward. Now the therapist sees the community as suspect, the Rousseau, Marx, Nietzsche, which means that you need to acquire inward knowledge of who you are in order to get over your problems, not look out. Now institutions, according to Reef, are where we go to perform our inward identity and not have our inward identity be formed by the community. These institutions can still be the same ones that we had previously, but this slight shift has vast implications. Truman then shifts into asking his two key questions that are going to motivate his exploration. First is, why is this identity, why is it so important that this identity is publicly acknowledged? And second is, why do we only publicly acknowledge some identities and not others? Reef doesn't necessarily have an explanation for that. Um, Reef explains that there's a that that why culture is shifting inwards and why individuals are being seen as more important, but it doesn't explain why the why our society has picked only certain identities, those typified by LGBTQ, and not other identities um, that fall outside of that. Taylor gives a bit more of a substantive answer here, um, in that the self can only exist among other selves, and so. In us developing our self-worth, we are driven to belong, in, and, um, and by belonging, we are able to find our identity. Now, I, I, I thought that uh, Truman's, Truman's um, example here was great about a teenager. Basically, there's a, like, if you look at any teenager, and maybe all, the three of us have this experience, I know I do, you know, a teenager is going to wear certain clothes in order to express, express herself, right? express himself, like, I'm going to be this person, and I'm going to be an individual, and yet you end up looking like all your other friends. And so there's this there's this there's this dialectic going on, which is how we get to Hegel. How can, Hegel's core or one of Hegel's core questions is how can I simultaneously be myself and belong to a wider social group? Um, Hegel's conclusion is that first of all that self-consciousness exists when it's recognized by another person. And so therefore we're looking for recognition. I thought Hegel's second point here was very humorous is that the greatest self-recognition is is to fight and kill another person because you recognize that person is completely in your way and you are you are very very in, intertwined with that person but because that's not always practical um or wise we we make a hierarchy instead which is giving everybody a place among other other people um thus bringing out self-consciousness being recognized by people who have power over us and those that we have power over hierarchies are complicated so we form what hegel calls in the german sitlichkeit which is 
German for basically communal obligation, but there's no clear word in English. So German continues to use this word, Stiklichkeit. These are basically the guideposts on our behavior, what our obligations are to the community that restrict what we can, what we can do and we cannot do. And that is what determines which identities are accepted and which ones are not. And our current cyclicites, LGBTQ plus identities, are accepted. And it would make perfect sense that those could be accepted and be seen as completely accepted while others are excluded. All right, finally, he talked about um, dignity and honor. We have shifted from being an honor-based society to a dignity-based society. And that can only happen when the individual is prioritized over all else. This came about via the Romantics, and Rousseau, and it is here that he gets to probably one, one argument that he makes that will turn a lot of people off from this book, um, though I would probably agree with it from a, from a legal perspective, um, though not necessarily an ethical perspective. He, he criticizes the decision of Brown versus Board of Education, which many people will close the book at this point. But his rationale here is very interesting. He looks at the opinion and notes that the argument was entirely based on two standards. One was psychological costs, being excluded. And the second was dignity afforded to all. And these two standards alone have the force of law in our society. Um, he even points out that the current cultural moment is taking these same two tools, the idea of exclusion, psychological costs, and dignity for all, um, and, and using them to push forward identity. So we see this very clear shift and very rapid shift over a couple hundred years towards dignity being exalted to a place where it never was before. And now it has the power of um, legal weight. Brevin, I'll hand over to you to talk about chapter two. Yes, thank you, Sam. So chapter two, entitled Reimagining Our Culture, is then trying to translate this from the individual level to the cultural level. So why does our culture have the particular ethical shape that it does? And more specifically, to answer the overarching question of this entire book, why is sex such a basic marker of identity in our society? And he uses Reef here as his sort of lodestar to work through the other thinkers he's also brought into the conversation. So starting with Reef, his analysis talks about first, second, and third worlds. First and second worlds justify morality by appealing to something transcendent beyond the material world. They appeal to a sacred order. The first world, the pagan one, does this in the sense of fate. The second world is faith-based, Christianity being the obvious example, or Islam, something like that. And the faith is woven into the order of society explicitly and systematically, but it is still a sacred order that is justified by something beyond itself. The final world is the third world. I don't believe there's a direct implication to the Cold War terminology. It just happens to be that way. And it's the third one chronologically for the most part. Although he does say that various worlds can coexist within a single society. And these third worlds are those that have to justify themselves on the basis of themselves. There is no sacred order beyond them that can justify their existence, their rules, their regulations. As Reef says, this is, a, this is an impossible task. You have to justify yourself only by reference to yourself. And this looks very familiar, very much like Alistair McIntyre's version of the Enlightenment project of justifying morality was doomed to fail, or much like Taylor's version, which is the imminent frame, where there is the world that is all that it is. We are in a closed box. There is nothing above, nothing beneath and bounded to the sides. There's nothing transcendent to appeal to. All there is, is what's in front of us. Now, his version of the transition from second world to third world 
or in Taylor's version from transcendent to imminent frame is more gradual than Reef's. Reef sees it as sort of a massive break in Western civilization that has happened relatively recently in his time in the mid 1900s, I believe. Taylor sees it as a more gradual effect. But Reef also deals with this by saying that these different worlds can coexist within a single society, a single country, a single culture. So how does this work out practically if you have these different worlds with the sacred order that may or may not be the cornerstone of the ethical discourse, the daily life, the frame that people live in. And he takes the example of abortion, which is quite convenient because that's what we talked about with Allison on the last episode. So when personhood in a second or first world is connected to a sacred order, it makes the question relatively quite easy. It's straightforward. No, it's a person. According to the sacred order, you cannot violate the rules governing that. Now, that's not to say that the sacred order couldn't say um, that abortion is fine, justified on terms of a sacred order. But it so happens that in our civilization, as far as the sacred order has gone, the sacred order has, the answer has been no. See certain strains of Judaism. There you see traditional Judaism that actually supports abortion in some in some cases you also look at like ancient roman culture which was very first world based and it was very okay in in fact their mythology allowed for that um you you expose the babies and leave them to uh the the wolves but after all romulus and ramus were raised raised by wolves precisely so this isn't to say that first worlds or second worlds are inherently more moral or better or don't have any complications as compared to the third world but rather how does it justify itself and in the case of a second world, the justification is transcendent and outside of the civilization proper. Therefore, it's an easy answer. But once you have a third world, once you just have an, an imminent frame where there is no sacred order to uh, appeal to, that personhood becomes contested, at least in our case. That's what's happened in our civilization. And furthermore, there are competing interests because things are argued amongst each other within the imminent frame, within the third world. There's no final arbiter of distinction. And that, as we spoke about with Allison, can collapse simply down to power. And here again, we see the therapeutic culture, that well-being is the, is the criteria and the value. And what that is, is whatever people say it is, or perhaps more accurately, whatever people with power in the society say that it is. So as we've sort of already noted, there are caveats to all this, which is just to say that second worlds aren't devoid of death or bad actors. They have their own internal disagreements and fights and that our current society that we live in is a mixed uh, world of first, second, and third. I say first only because the pagans and witches have returned to Instagram. And you know, if we take them at their word, I suppose they would be first world. Uh, so then he, he moves into his analysis of tying this into McIntyre and that the uh, McIntyre's morality, the key component of it being a commitment to teleology, which is to say that you can tell what you are and what you should be, what your end is. Evaluating these ends is a socially involved process, however. We don't do it in isolation. We do it in a community. Ethics exist only in a tradition, not as a disembodied force. Hence my statement, ethics don't exist. Or as McIntyre says it, probably much better, moral philosophy presupposes a sociology. He also pulls in McIntyre's idea of emotivism. That is that judgments and moral judgments are nothing but expressions of preference and attitude, of feelings. But he uses this specifically as a theory of use, not meaning. That emotivism treats judgments as preferences because the implicit story of ethics is a failure of justification of those. So it's a social theory, and it's something that is useful to say that your opponents are doing while saying, no, no, I'm standing on principles, but you're just saying what your preferences are. 
rather than being an actual theory of how should we justify morality? Let's do emotivism. Um, it's more of a debate tactic uh, and, and a descriptor of our sad state than anything else. The final part of chapter two moves into a few very interesting concepts. Uh, specifically, what are the characteristics of a third world? And he has several ideas of this, which are that a third world has the character of being an anti-culture, of being ahistoric, and of creating a certain kind of art, which is to say death works. So let's start with anti-culture. To go back to Reef, uh, he explains that anti-cultures, that is to say third worlds, are continually recycling fantasy firsts and that they only exist as negations of sacred orders in second or first worlds that they are usurping or succeeding. In, in other words, their goal is to break the, the sacreds of actual cultures, the things that have actually been built up. Their goal is simply to be the first person to break X norm that the previous society held dear, that it's the destruction of history without replacement. He doesn't have a very high opinion of third worlds, but that's not to say that second worlds were perfect either. But he does believe and and argues that second worlds are capable of reform. And he takes slavery in the United States uh, specifically, or I would suppose in, in the world works as well, as an example of a second world that undergoes reform, that slavery was both argued against and justified in terms of, of the Bible and Christianity because the sacred order was central to that society and the norms shifted still within that as the, as the, as the continual sacred order. That a second world doesn't have to be static. Third worlds, on the other hand, their goal is continual movement and breaking of whatever came before them. The second characteristic of third worlds is an ahistoricity that there's a tendency in anti-cultures because the past isn't valued, that there's nothing good back there, that it seeks to destroy it and find new ways to explain everything that is. So here you can see totalizing systems like Marxism or its various successors that divides the world into you know oppression and oppressors with a freedom at the very end, uh, but a freedom that is still bounded by the imminent frame. Specificity in history, in details, in learning, doesn't matter because there's nothing to learn. The past was, for all intents and purposes, merely mistakes that we can't gain anything from except for to not be them. Finally, in the art world, he has a few comments here that are quite interesting and have you know, led us three to continually be labeling everything uh, that we see as death works because it's such a great, it's such a fantastic word. Uh, and he defines death works, uh, pulling from Reef, as all-out assaults on something vital to unestablished culture. That every death work represents an admiring final assault on the object of its admiration, the sacred orders to which their arts are some expression of the repressive mode, end quote. And to unpack that briefly, Reef holds, along with Freud, that there is repression inherent in civilization that is necessary for the building of it, and furthermore, that that repression results in outlets such as art that are uh creations of what that society holds uh, values in, in, in terms of what it is uh, suppressing. So that is to say, a death work is a mockery of that thing uh, that is a component of the sacred order of civilization. It's a mockery of the old values. With the example that he brings up, Piss Christ, where you have a, a crucifix in a jar of urine is sort, of, is sort of, is the classical example in which the goal of the art is not to dispute 
with the crucifix or to call it untrue, but rather simply to label it as disgusting and then move on from it. And here we see all of the various symptoms of the modern age, which David Foster Wallace, I say, invoking it so that Stephen doesn't have to, uh, of he's bouncing in his chair, of satire, cynicism, mockery, all of these things being small works of, of death work uh, among us. Um, I'm so happy right now. I Yeah, I can tell. But he does say that the biggest one, that the biggest death work perhaps, is pornography. And he quotes from the Catholic, cate- uh, from the Catholic Catechism, uh, somewhat telling on himself as a Protestant. But he, he does say, um, pornography consists in removing real or simulated sexual acts from the intimacy of the partners in order to display them deliberately to third parties. It offends against chastity because it perverts the, con- the conjugal act. The intimate giving of spouses to each other. It does grave injury to the dignity of its participants, actors, vendors, and the public, since each one becomes an object of base pleasure and illicit profit for others. It immerses all who are involved in the illusion of a fantasy world. It is a grave offense. Civil authorities should prevent the, the production and distribution of pornographic materials, end quote, straight from the catechism. And in this sense, he, he sees that as the ultimate expression of a death work, taking something that is valued by the previous culture, by the Christian culture, and rendering it base, untrue, mockery of it. And the final one that he speaks about that we know quite well from our reading of Neil Postman, which is to say that third worlds are forgetful. They rename away history. The present is eternal. You don't need to read anything from more than five years ago, uh, all of which is not Lindy whatsoever, Sam, as as as, as we know. Uh, but thus he ends the second chapter. Um, so just to give a, a, a brief roadmap of where we're headed from here, uh, he he take he will take us through several thinkers, uh, Rousseau, the Romantics, Wordsworth, Shelley, and Blake, then to Nietzsche, Marx, Darwin, Freud, the New Left, and then finally his sort of analysis of where we are now. Um, now, gentlemen, uh, thoughts on the first two chapters? It's a, it's a strong opening. One of the things I, I like, and we three have discussed, discussed this a handful of times, that all of the authors we're reading, all coming from mostly different uh, times. I mean, well, times from the um, the the early early 20th century and on. But McIntyre's writing at one time, Gilchrist writing another. Um, what's his face? Shoot, uh, ideas have consequences. Uh, Richard Weaver. Weaver. Oh, um, Weaver. Yeah. Uh, all, and, and all of these folks that are coming at this from different angles, different perspectives, different faiths, different times, but all of them seem to be pointing to very common threads. A lack of sincerity being one of my, my favorites, uh, but a, a, a great forgetting, a obsession with the here and now, a, an inability to see beyond the imminent. Uh, I mean, that, that like, you, as you were describing it, that struck me as almost very McGilchristian. Uh, a, a culture that is only able to refer to itself sounds like the left hemisphere trapped in its own maze of mirrors. And I, I just find it fascinating. Truman, he isn't necessarily doing any novel scholarship himself. He's, he's doing a good job, though, at bringing all these ideas together and then saying, hey, this is having particular applications within the sexual revolution. And him bringing up a lot of these authors is just kind of, kind of continuing to confirm our suspicions that all of these authors are pointing to common threads, which I find absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I would say that, and this has been my analysis of, of Truman, I think, since I started the book, he's not so much an original thinker, but he is the second layer of 
synthesis that is necessary for an idea to be made more practical and popularized. That he's the type of thinker whose job it is to take after virtue and, you know, take out the parts that can actually be applied. And there are other authors who do this to greater or lesser degrees. Rod Dreher, I criticize for numerous reasons, but he did have a kernel of truth, which is to say that we have to rethink how our daily life relates to the wider culture, which he pulled from McIntyre wrongly, but that he yeah. got that he did get from that. And that is that type of function that I think Truman uh, fulfills very well. Yeah, it's like, I, I'm not going to hand, I mean, I've handed people after virtue before, and you read the first couple chapters and have no idea what he's saying. Um, and if I mean, that's, that's a fair response to him, especially if you're not like, you know, like trained in philosophy or something like that, which you, you shouldn't have to be doing just these ideas because they're very common sense. So I think the thinker like Dreher or Truman, who is articulating McIntyre well, authentically, holistically, well, not Dreher, but Truman at least, um, extremely valuable. And, and it, it's very easy. Like, like, I mean, the idea of like a social imaginary or an imminent frame I mean, it could take Taylor so long to explain what that means and you kind of get lost in it. But if he just says, look, why are these words acceptable now when they weren't acceptable 30 years ago? Shifts in the social imaginary. It, it, it makes sense to people. So I, li- I think that it's a very helpful application in, um, in understanding these thinkers and also in, in, in um, actually utilizing their ideas in everyday life. Yeah, that's, that's well said. I, I think, so I've definitely heard a similar criticism of Taylor in that he has a 700 page tome and is evidently not a very good writer. He just goes on these wild tangents that aren't necessarily super related to each other and is very difficult to follow. Uh, Truman himself, as much as he likes Reef, is pretty critical of his writing style. Um, he says that like it's quite frankly opaque prose, that it's really difficult to break through. And so he is doing a great service to everyone in taking a lot of these thinkers who are super dense and as much as I like McIntyre, yeah, I mean, that is a very valid criticism. He's really opaque at times. I still get nightmares about the uh, the chapter that's pretty much all in Greek. Uh, the Greek, the Greek chapter, <laughs> I, I was just thinking about that. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, just that translate bad. the freaking Greek, man. Uh, <laughs> so he is doing a, a great service to all of us. I mean, and later on, he'll go through even more opaque people like Foucault and uh, Bouvard and, I don't know, who's the other, uh, Judith Butler. Uh, a lot of a lot of writers that are, have, are like they built reputations on being as opaque as possible. And so, yeah, if maybe he's not doing super novel research, but he is doing a great service in synthesizing all of these really great thinkers. And I think is showing that he himself is a great thinker. Uh, one thing it, it actually just occurred to me, I hadn't thought of this, but uh, the difference between the Mises and Poesis, and I, I think we'll get more into this uh, eventually. I did, uh, as much as I like Frankel, I, I realized, oh, Frankel is distinctly poetic. Um, man's search for meaning. meaning. Asking what the meaning of life is not something we should do. That is life asking us the question, what is, what is your meaning? That, the question, what is the meaning of life, is as meaningless as the question, what is the best chess move? It's like, well, it depends on what, what's the board look like. Uh, and that is a very poetic approach versus a, a mimetic approach, which I, I hadn't thought of that. Um, but I, I am... Mm-hmm. As brilliant as Frankel is, and as much as I like him, it's it's interesting to see that even a brilliant man such as himself, he had he was still within a certain imaginary in which he he viewed li- life as poetic, not mimetic. 
Well, it's not, I don't think there's a problem. I mean, this, this might be a tangent, but I don't think there's a problem in appreciating like good good argumentation or even astute thoughts in like these in these ideas. I mean, um, you know, Truman in, in many of his articles, uh, I've I've seen him reference uh, Foucault quite consistently. Is he's like, yeah, Foucault's view of sexuality is like in part correct of like it being like his view about the identity shift that happens when you put that fixation on sexuality and um also his ideas of power really interested in, in what he has to say about power so um you know i don't think there's a problem with taking taking some of these thinkers and like really playing them out uh that, for that reason that's one of the reasons i love david hume which he mentions in here as one of the very early emotivist thinkers as was mcintyre and i love reading david hume because i think that he really calls the bluff of the um empiricists early on is he's like, well, how can you really know anything? Like, how do you, how do you, um, you know, how do you know anything beyond your own emotions? Why don't you, how, how do I know you're not just feeling that we should structure our governments in this way? Um, and, and just prettying it up with language. And I think it's, I think he's brilliant in that respect for calling that bluff. So, um, yeah, I think, I think there's no problem with pulling ideas from thinkers who, you know, fit on the, on the wrong side of the, of the, um, you know, are in the wrong world and aren't Aquinas. <laughs> Well, one thing I wanted to to bring up, uh, the idea of death works, um, in particular, Piss Christ. So I have very mixed feelings on Piss Christ because I want to agree with uh, with Truman. I, I look at it and I think an object of devotion, of uh, of sacred order, of beauty is being immersed in the scatological. It is being immersed, immersed in actual urine. And that is clear blasphemy. That is clear sacrilege and not okay the artist who made it is evidently I, I looked this up like evidently a devout catholic and was trying to promote some amount of commentary on this is what society is doing to christ when they do x y and z this is what uh, this is what the church is currently doing like it was he was trying to stir up some amount of reaction some amount of you should be horrified of this now consider why you're horrified horrified by this and I, I have one or two thoughts that I think might counter that claim, but I at least want to take it seriously because I think that is what our imaginary interlocutor might say about something like Piss Christ is that it kind of don't, don't look at it only as just blasphemy. Maybe there's something deeper going on that we should consider. So I don't know. What do you, what do you two think? I think the, I, I understand the counterpoint and it, and it could even, you know, be well taken and true. I think the counterpoint is that it's a death work whether the author like wants it to be or not, which is to say um, that it went to that, or which is to say that for that type of art to be possible is in itself a destruction of the second order, that it's a uh, disfiguring of the second world sacred order. And, you know, something, something, insert my, my uh, English major training here, death of the author, the fact that he intended it to be one way doesn't change the fact that to a first, you know, someone looking at first glance, um, uh, that it is rendered disgusting and untrue. So maybe, you know, at, at best, a, a, you know, person living in a second world uh, sees that and is awoken to the, the threat of the third world. But the fact that it exists at all shows that the third world is, is there, that it is a death work. Perhaps it's a death work purpose to awaken the second world and the people of the sacred order to the threat that they face. Uh, but it is nonetheless death work. Interesting. 
I, have you seen? I think I'm I'm trying to look it up right now. Oh yes, the the body of the dead Christ in the tomb. It it was made in the 19th century. I think it's a jur. Oh no, never mind. Um, it was made in the 16th century. I I was incorrect. But it shows uh, Christ lying dead. Um, and it's one of the first and only paintings, especially of that time, to show him beginning to rot. Um, his his hand with with a wound on it. Um, is showing signs of decay, and. It, it was considered quite quite scandalous at the time. Um, and Dostoevsky has um, a quote, I think, in The Idiots, where they're having a, a conversation. He says, like, a, one look at that uh, paint is enough, or that painting is enough to make me lose faith. And so I also wonder that which is a lot more carefully done, and certainly not within a third world, is still seemingly starting to at least point to some sort of death work. Or do you not think that this is a death work? I'd have to see more more context i think i would say that christ's body starting to decay i'm not sure what what church teaching is on that i, I i'm not sure that's an it's an interesting question i mean it has it has brought about plenty of commentary and i mean there's some just reading one of the the quotes um his mouth is left ajar uh and one art critic says um uh, he wants to tell us that even in death christ still looks and speaks which I think is quite a powerful statement. Um, so at the very least, I think this would be a different sort of death work and probably not as strong a death work in that there is still an interpretation. You can look at that and see beauty. You can see hope. You can see redemption. Whereas with Piss Christ, arguably you can't. I, 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 I find it very difficult. I find it very difficult to look at that at face value or not even at face value, just, just to look at that and say there isn't any amount of not sacrilege going on. Yeah, I think the the key word may be something like mockery. Hmm. Yes, whereas this painting doesn't seem to be intending to make a mockery, there's no way you can make Piss Christ not somewhat of a mockery. Yeah, perhaps that is it. But okay. potentially worth worth teasing out. Um, you know, if I, I, I would be devastated if I had to rein in my calling of everything that I see a death work. Uh, but but perhaps that is the the just Look, thing to do. Everything uh, we don't like is a death work. That's clear. Obviously. Uh, but speaking of injustice. Steven, I believe you have an article that's about this. That, that I do. I've, I found this guy on First Things. His name is Carl Truman. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of him, but he's a pretty smart guy. Never he heard of him. Sounds time. like a second-rate thinker. I don't know. Exactly. Probably mediocre. Just just pirating off of others that are much better. Um, so a rather short article on First Things, but I, I, I took it because I thought it was an interesting, very practical case study of what we're about to enter into for however many months this uh, this particular study goes. Um, and so Carl Truman is discussing a recent case that happened at a college that's associated with the Evangelical Covenant Church. Uh, and it recently had its Christian Studies Department removed, ostensibly on the grounds of low enrollment. But it was eventually revealed that they had, in fact, plenty of funds to keep the department going and rehired all of the professors, with one notable exception, that of Dr. Bradley Nassif. Nassif, apologies for pronunci pronunciation. Uh, Dr. Nassif is an Orthodox theologian with very traditionalist views on marriage. And interestingly enough, the ECC holds to these views as well, but the college nonetheless wanted nothing to do with him. And he would be often at uh, times ridiculed and kind of publicly, maybe not directly called out, but uh, I think the term is subtweeting. Um, and it, it pretty much accused of uh, saying that he was keeping in with sensibilities of quote unquote old white men. The amusing thing is being that he's Lebanese, and Truman does point out that there are very interesting and Foucauldian language games being played with the label old white men, and that there's a very interesting 
shift with the term fundamentalists, of which he was accused of being multiple times. Uh, incidentally, Alvin Plantinga has an excellent article in which he breaks down the definition of fundamentalist to pretty much mean that stupid son of a bitch who, uh, whose theological views are considerably to the right of me and my enlightened friends. Uh, it's a hilarious article. Would recommend that. Uh, but it is interesting in that in this book, especially when we get to the new left, he will constantly style on Foucault, but uh, he presents, intriguingly enough, a Foucaultian critique of this situation in that progressive Christianity has ironically, or ironically having bought in with Foucault and his cronies, have become part of what Foucault would call a quote-unquote a regime of truth in which any dissenter can be silenced. Quote, under this regime, you can indulge in the lazy and sophomoric practice of dismissing a man from an ethnic mi minority as being white merely because you do not like his views. You can claim to be a Christian institution while refusing Christian teaching on sexuality a place in the curriculum. And you can do all this with impunity, because perhaps even with the applause of the wider culture, because the logic of the regime of truth within which you operate. And this is the strange rule of DEI. Not the classical liberal project, certainly, but Truman is claiming that it doesn't even follow its own rules. A minority can be castigated for dissenting as Dr. Nasif was. Quote, one status as an ethnic or religious minority can be either a decisive factor or utterly irrelevant, depending on what those in power think at any given day. And this is this is a very concerning shift. And I think he is right to bring up Foucault as irritating as Foucault is. And as much as I don't like his whole thing about language and kind of disintegrating everything into power. But I think Truman is right in saying that Foucault has some amount of points that we should at least familiarize ourselves with the ideas because the left... Whether or not the very, you know, Joe Briefcase, who sides with the left more often than not, whether or not he's read Foucault or even heard of Foucault, he is influenced by Foucault. And a lot of the cultural framework or a lot of the philosophical framework that the left is working with, or perhaps not, let's not say the left, let's say the more progressive ideology, a lot of this is working directly with Foucault. And that we should be familiarizing ourselves with a lot of Foucault's ideology uh, because this is the, the playbook that they're using. Um, one last admittedly ad hominem dig, um, though it does serve to point out that ad hominem or no, he is pointing to a cognitive dissonance in their actions, is the party that claims to be protecting the vulnerable has just fired an elderly man whose wife is dying of stage four cancer. So Dr. Nesif, an elderly minority whose wife is dying, has just been outed by the uh, progressive party of care. Um, and, and that is one thing I, I am, I'm not sure I'm a huge fan of Truman as funny as it is to read him kind of like his like slight jabs at, uh, at people he disagrees with. And I mean, everyone does it at times. It's like, okay, man, come on, be above that. But I think he is kind of right in pointing this out and that there is a, an extreme cognitive dissonance that the party of diversity and inclusion is actually hurting a man at the time when he needs the most compassion as possible. And also the party that's like, oh, yeah, a bunch of old white men. That's all the only people who hold to this. It's like, well, he's not. I guess like, he is an old man, but not white. So I, don't know, I thought it was an interesting article and a very interesting taste uh, or um, uh, case study and what, what kind of why we're reading this book. The continued, uh, although it may just be a Truman thing, but the continued invocation of Foucault makes me want to, you know, like we like there are the right Hegelians like Francis Fukuyama but it makes me want to go uh, suss out the right Foucaultians, uh, all the right-wingers who, who, who take Foucault to, to their own ends. Slash maybe to found the school, who knows? I think it's you know just another classic example of, um, I mean, among other things, the institutional rot in 
Christian higher education, which is just sort of a slow rolling disaster that all of us, I think, for various reasons, have uh, a decent amount of proximity to and have and, and are uh, mourning in many ways. Sadly. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I think his points here about the, I mean, maybe nobody would, I don't know. It's it, it's it's difficult to say whether this piece would be would be used to persuade or more. It's just kind of firing up his own side. Um, but I mean, the argument about like taking a double look at pluralism, like okay, how pluralistic really are we, or are are our institutions when they're excluding you know anybody, regardless of their of their um, religious commitments, their ethnicity, any of that, on the basis of one idea. Um, I mentioned this. When I was reading this article, I mentioned it to my wife, and I was like, "Oh yeah, he was excluded for holding like this orthodox position of sexuality." And she was like, "Oh well, which which version?" I mean, there there are so many different interpretations under the. I mean, all within the general, you know, traditional view of Christian sexuality. Like you can, you know, it's like okay, well, what do we do with people who are gay in the church? Are they in leadership? Are they left out of leadership? Or is is being gay a sin? Is it not a sin? Are we really okay with it, but don't get married? Are we, you know, how are we doing it? Like, what are we responding to? And I'm sitting here thinking, well, it really doesn't matter. Any of those views um, and the nuanced um, opinions that support them would be excluded in this scenario because he's holding that marriage is between a man and a woman. And it's just, it's it, it, it's you know, always been astounding. Maybe it's just stopping astounding to me that that is such a, um, that that is becoming such a controversial position that it's worth, that, you know, people are getting fired from conservative Christian schools. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I guess I guess I kind of wondered diversity for the sake of, of what? Like, there's not there's not really an end to the diversity there. I mean, intellectual diversity is great, um, and and it seems to be claimed in these scenarios, but it's clearly not. Well, yeah, the, I, I don't know. The it, it is interesting. This this kind of just gets back your comments on um, kind of surprised yet shouldn't be uh just brought it to mind i guess just reiterating truman's original point that like in the last 20 years we've seen such a wild shift um i mean i remember it was i was in college when um was it Obergefell v hodges uh yeah. which um overturned doma and um i i forget which sequence of court cases it was but pretty much when um gay marriage gay marriage was legalized federally and yeah. It was a national conversation and legitimately it was a conversation that you could have between different people like different people of different sides and for the most part it would be a civil conversation like you had some people that were very pro lgbt and like nope gay people should be able to marry that's that's just kind of fundamental and you had people who were very conservative saying nope marriage is between a man and a woman and they would have a conversation about it disagree vehemently but still walk away kind of respectfully and like, okay, that, that person brought up some points. And now even super conservative institutions are starting to crack under the pressure and starting to be like, nope, nope, this is just not something we want to be associated with. Um, it is just, it is very remarkable how fast that, that shift has come. Although I guess my inherent needs to be contrarian or slash like, I guess, sympathetic with um, the hypothetical other side or not hypothetical because they do exist and they're the majority in fact, were I back in the 70s and saying like, man, this whole like desegregation thing, man, it just kind of swept the nation by storm. What gifts? Um, and I, I think a lot of people do very much view the two as basically an identical phenomenon that at one point, black people weren't allowed to be with white people. And just like now, at one point, men weren't allowed to marry men and women weren't allowed to marry women. And how backwards was that? So I think lest we get caught up in our own 
like how things how did things change so fast? I mean, yes, it is an interesting cultural phenomenon, but at the same time, like especially I, I I'm sympathetic with the other side that like yeah because people woke up to the fact that this was a good thing. I'm gonna clip that little thing where you said, "Ah, oh, man, this desegregation thing." Low Don't low you low dare! Low. Don't and, you dare! <laughs> and send it to every one of your future employers. <laughs> Jeez Louise, this is how I oh geez, this is how I get canceled. See, this is why I was nervous about doing this book. I really want to do this book. It's a fascinating book, but this is why I was nervous about doing this book. Steven, None of us are gonna be able to run for office. You realize that, don't you? Steven, there's no I don't need, want to run for office. Yeah, I mean same. There's no need to be angry. But if you are angry, perhaps you have a rant? Uh, I mean, I do, actually. So wow, good job. Good transition. Good transition, brother. Thank you. Yeah. Um the MSU parking Gestapo. I hate them. I despise them. Over the summer, so I have gotten multiple parking tickets from the MSU parking Gestapo. And over, so uh, even after having purchased a uh, MSU graduate uh, student parking pass, which is like over a hundred bucks per semester for parking, that is plentiful. There's plenty of parking. And I, so I, I, I purchased the thing. I go and I didn't put the sticker on for the first couple of days and I got like two tickets, had to pay them. And then over the summer, they want me to pay another hundred some bucks for an empty parking lot, to be able to park at literally an empty parking lot. And so I finally say, screw it. Like, no, I'm not doing that. And I eat about a ticket a week because they're, they're not all that on top of their jobs, which is just fine by me. And that's fine. I kind of accepted over the summer. It's like, nope, average cost of part or the average cost per week is about $10 a week. And versus going and buying a student parking pass, which would be about 130 bucks. Nope, this is worth it. Over the summer, I, I gritted my teeth every time I found my car with a parking ticket in the middle of an empty lot. They're not helping. They're not contributing to anything. They're just taking money from me. But fine, whatever. That's the rules. Rules are rules. I just consider part of my uh, part of it. I, I just considered it as part of my personal budget. And then I get to this semester. And I, I have, I do everything right. I have my parking permits. I, I've paid for it. I have my sticker on and I need to fly to the airport and MSU is near the airport. And so I park there and get an Uber over to the airport and they freaking give me a parking ticket because I was parked overnight during an MSU football game because I need to give it to a bunch of uh, alumni that have paid extra to be able to park there to go to the football game. I, I, I paid for parking all semester, but MSU alumni who don't even go there get to get to get to take it because they want to go see a football game for a football team that right now is not even doing that good. <laughs> so all that to say, I despise the MSU parking Gestapo. They have, are making the world only worse off. They everything is worse off for their existence, and I wish them ill. Yeah. First of all. When you started that rant, I knew it was going to be a good one. You did not disappoint. So thank you. Um, but you know what it is, Stephen, is you're the only Chrysler 200 they've ever seen. And so they're they're at war with you, too. <laughs> they know it's you. <laughs> you're not wrong. They've, I've got a reputation, apparently. <laughs> all right. Well, at least we despise each other. Sometimes, you know, that's all it takes. Uh, as for my rant, uh, so I know last time, poetical about the death of summer uh which is true it's been dead for uh, a month and a half now uh however here on the east coast i was struck there was a, a counterstroke from summer's handmaiden that is air conditioning uh one last one last gasp 
before receding into the sweet summer darkness, uh, you know, before being entombed under falling leaves. And that is to say that a drain pipe for the AC unit above us uh, decided to pop off and leak water down into our baseboards and under our floor, ruining probably about an eighth, maybe, of the entire floor in our condo, uh, forcing the some of the drywall to be taken out, which has been done, a hole to be cut in the ceiling, which has been done and not fixed, uh, as well as a large portion of the floor in a closet to be torn out and redone, which is not done and is still waiting. And there are two giant humidifier uh, boxes in my bedroom that have been there for the past like three weeks now. All this to say, all this to say, Summer, I see what you're doing. I see what you're trying to do. It was a good shot, but I had and will continue to have so much pumpkin to spite you forever. And maybe, maybe I might even celebrate Thanksgiving in July next year, just to show you that no matter what you do to me, no matter how many problems you cause to my AC, Thanksgiving in July, pumpkin pie is going to happen. Ew. Pumpkin Why would you pie. Do that? To spite yeah, summer. Summer is my enemy. I feel like you're spiting yourself at that point. Maybe, maybe summer is actually tricking you into having pumpkin pie. Sam, go. I do love pumpkin, but only in the month of October. All right, my rant. Um, I already gave this rant, but I, but it's giving. Or I gave it to you guys earlier. Cut that out. Okay, my rant is about emergency rooms. Um, I have had a storied relationship with emergency rooms over the last month and a half or so, two months. Never been to the emergency room in my life. Been twice in the last two months with very serious situations. They did their job, and I'm still alive, so that's all good. Well, I needed a COVID test today um, for a for an upcoming procedure next week, maybe if I don't have COVID, which I might. But um, I, they scheduled the appointment to be like way up on the Upper East Side, like an hour and a half away from my apartment. And I did not want to do tests there where it would require me to take an hour and a, or a, a half day off work. So I called my doctor. They said I could do it walk-in at the Brooklyn Mount Sinai Hospital. Great. I've been to the Brooklyn Mount Sinai Hospital before, to the emergency room, and it was awful. So I was hoping that maybe their walking COVID situation would be better, but I wasn't too confident. I called ahead today just to verify, and they said, yeah, sure, just walk in, go to the emergency room, talk to the desk, you'll be all good. They'll take care of you, they'll get you a test quick, you'll be fine. We have walk-in. Great. So I go to the desk, the emergency room, you're going to start taking my information, take my emergency card. And before I know what's happened, they've slapped a wristband on me and I've signed a waiver and now I'm admitted to the emergency room. I'm I'm on my break from work. <laughs> like I'm on my lunch break. And so I'm sitting here like, well, this is this is awkward. They bring me back there after a about a 15 or 20 minute wait, sit me down across from the room where I almost died two weeks ago. And I'm just kind of like having this weird deja vu experience i see three different nurses all who are very concerned about my sore throat before one of them finally swabs my nose after the doctor's giving me very clear instructions on what to do because the, the doctor has time to see me in this crowded i don't know pit and a nurse swabs my nose and i'm like okay can i finally go now and she's like oh yeah yeah i think you're okay to go unless do you want to wait for your discharge papers and i tell her no thank you and walk out and then she was she was supportive of that but all to say emergency rooms suck um especially when you accidentally get admitted to one so that was my afternoon oh sam demanding an entire emergency room team to test you for covid prima donna no it's very selfish sam don't you know that there's a pandemic on i know even worse is that i might actually have covid um given my symptoms given that my wife has covid 
So I probably have COVID and they put me in this crowded room with a bunch of elderly people who were not doing so hot. Um, so I don't even it's, know. It is pretty rough. I mean, we all know yeah. that now having having COVID makes you a, a more moral fa- failure. We've all established this. Society. This is true. But Stephen don't. is the only one don't. among us who's killed Alistair McIntyre. So <laughs> yeah. I, know, I, just need, I just need to I need to don the N95 dunce cap. <laughs> if that doesn't exist, it needs to. Someone put that into the uh, the Dolly AI uh, and create it. Uh, but I believe that should wrap us up if we want this episode to be any kind of reasonable length. Uh, so for everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Sam. And uh, let your self rise and triumph. That's really true, man. What well like was that purely ad hoc? That was about five seconds in the making. I uh, like I I was thinking like what's the what's the best like outro? I'm like Truman, true man. Okay, I'm gonna see if I can fit that in. No, yeah, that's good. Much better than than you know complaining about desegregation. So yeah, thanks. Don't don't. don't. <laughs> <laughs>